tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. and at the same time costs less. Although the ration was intended to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one day. You're listening to The Feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon. Where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we're giving you a seat at the table. This is a podcast where meals make history. Just a few things before we get started today. First, A huge thank you to all our new Patreon supporters. Keep an eye on the mail. We'll be sending you a Feast t-shirt as our way of saying, well, that you're great. Thanks for keeping the show going. Honestly, we could not do this without you. And if you'd like to become a supporting member of the Feast and get a free t-shirt, and hey, free t-shirt, find out more by going to thefeastpodcast.org slash donate. And another way of getting a t-shirt is by filling out our listener survey, which you can find on our homepage. This survey helps us understand a bit more about you, our listeners, and what you'd like to see more of, or less of, on upcoming episodes. It's entirely anonymous, but if you want a chance at that shirt, leave us your email address for a chance to win one. Again, you can find it by going to thefeastpodcast.org and clicking on the link to our listener survey. If you're a regular podcast listener, you'll know that March is Tripod Month, a time where you have a chance to find some great new podcasts out there. And there are thousands to choose from. We're huge fans of The Endless Knot, a podcast about the many connections that link history, language, culture, and more. Or also The Story Behind, a great bite-sized podcast about every kind of trivia imaginable. How about Eat This Podcast? a wonderful show out of England that confronts some of the biggest food questions in today's society. Like the pros and cons of a meat-free diet? What exactly is an English sausage? And the future of single malt whiskey? You can find even more recommendations by searching the hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D, Tripod, on Twitter and Instagram. One of the oddest things I ever learned about Charles Darwin was that he ate an owl while he was a student at Cambridge University in the 1830s. A brown owl. You see, Darwin was famously part of a weekly dining society called the Glutton Club, where each week he and his fellow club members gathered to try rare and unusual kinds of meat. Everything from hawks to a gooty, a kind of rat, showed up on their dining tables. No one knows exactly how many meals the group enjoyed, but apparently it was the owl that did the group in. The taste of the poor bird, which club members later admitted was rather old before it went into the roasting pan, was, as one club member put it, indescribable. Apparently, indescribably awful was the phrase he was searching for. Whatever the owl tasted like, it was strong enough to put a stop to any more dinners. 
But Darwin's, shall we say, adventurous palate didn't end with one bad owl experience at Cambridge. Almost immediately after university, he embarked on what would be the famous voyages on the Beagle. And while seeing the world, Darwin enjoyed quite a few unusual delicacies, such as iguanas, pumas, and more. All meals he dutifully recorded in his journal, along, of course, with tasting notes, like these. In the morning, we had caught an armadillo, which, although a most excellent dish when roasted in its shell, did not make a very substantial breakfast and dinner for two hungry men. Darwin wasn't the only scientist who brought his work to the dinner table. 18th and 19th century scientists had a bit of a reputation for tasting their specimens, and perhaps none more so than William Buckland, an English paleontologist and geologist who lived just a bit before Darwin. Even today, Buckland's notorious eating habits almost rival his other, not insignificant accomplishments, among other things, publishing the first scientific study of a dinosaur. But Buckland's culinary bucket list was not to be sniffed at. His goal, apparently, was to eat every species of animal in existence, from ostrich to hyena to alligator. There was even a legend that the preserved heart of the French king Louis XIV had found its way to Buckland's dinner plate. Buckland may have been the most enthusiastic patron of unusual meats, but that doesn't mean later generations of scientists haven't kept up with the trend. The scientist Richard Wassersug published a paper in 1971 on the comparative palatability of dry-season tadpoles from Costa Rica, which seems to be a fancy way of saying which tadpoles are tastier than others. When paleontologist R. Dale Guthrie and his team discovered a preserved 36,000-year-old Pleistocene bison in an Alaskan gold mine in 1979, they stewed up and ate some of its neck tissue while preparing the rest of the carcass to be put on display. It doesn't even have to be animals, necessarily. When researchers from the University of Toronto discovered what they claimed was the Earth's oldest water, clocking in somewhere between 1 to 2.6 billion years old— in a mine in Ontario, Canada. They took a few sips. Apparently, nothing tastes good after a few billion years, even water. Barbara Sherwood Lawler, one of the lead researchers of the study, admitted to the LA Times that it tasted terrible, much saltier than seawater, and thicker. Lawler, in true Canadian style, compared the billion-year-old water to the consistency of light maple syrup. Eating, or in Lawler's case, drinking your specimen, may not be the most common style of research in modern scholarship. But food still has a large role in the scientific community. After all, scientists rely on their senses to observe and analyze the natural world. The difference between the sound of the hoot of the owl versus the call of the blue jay. The look at the stripes of a tiger versus the spots of a leopard. The smell of the rose versus the daffodil. And as some scientists have asked, why not use all five senses when studying the natural world, including taste? Not that the suggestion isn't controversial, but you can almost see their point, can't you? Whether it's iguana or billion-year-old water, maybe it's just old-fashioned scientific curiosity. The itch to see or do or even taste something no one's ever tasted before. It's the sense of adventure— exploring the unknown or unusual. So perhaps it's fitting, then, that it's an institution that celebrates that urge to explore, whether on land, sea, air, or even space, that also is famously known for holding dinners with, shall we say, unusual dinner menus. I'm talking, of course, about the Explorers Club. The club, which began in 1904, is dedicated to the advancement of field research, more simply put, that age-old human love of adventure. Past members are a veritable who's who of famous explorers, scientists, and naturalists of the 20th and 21st centuries. Ruald Amundsen was awarded membership to be the first to the South Pole in 1911, as was Charles Lindbergh for a solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927. Members also include three former U.S. presidents, including Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, 
and Herbert Hoover. When Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong traveled to the moon in 1969, they carried the Explorers Club flag with them. Of course, a miniature version to conserve space. But as if the renowned members and interplanetary explorations weren't enough, the Explorers Club had also become famous for something else. Their annual dinners. After all, it was a dinner that got the whole club going. A collection of explorers who sought out the remote and rare all over the world. And what better way to share tales of travels than over drinks and dinner? What had started as a few friends meeting up once a year grew as its membership swelled. By the 1920s, the club, headquartered in New York, had become known for its highbrow dinners and lectures. The height of New York society, like John D. Rockefeller Jr., was known to turn up to hear about the latest in field research over epic meals. Throughout the 20th century, explorers sent souvenirs of their journeys to the Explorers Club from all over the world, some of which you can still find today in the club's headquarters, like a lion shot by Teddy Roosevelt. Other items are a bit more unusual, like the so-called Yeti scalp, sent to the club by Sir Edmund Hillary and Marlon Perkins. The piece was used to disprove the Yeti's existence. When the scalp was examined, it turned out to be made from the rather less impressive Himalayan goat, not an abominable snowman. Yeti scalps and lion pelts aside, the Explorers Club also was known for continuing the legacy made famous by William Buckland and Charles Darwin, that is, nibbling on some unusual specimens. And as it turns out, it wasn't the Yeti scalp that was to be the most famous case of mistaken identity at the Explorers Club. The feast is supported by Zip Schedule's online employee scheduling software. Employee shift scheduling can be time-consuming for any business manager. Put aside the spreadsheets and create your next work schedule in minutes. With Zip Schedules, you can automatically communicate schedules to your employees. And Zip Schedule's cool mobile app lets your employees check and update their schedules from anywhere. Zip Schedules makes scheduling effortless. For a free trial, visit zipschedules.com slash the feast or use the promo code feast17 at zipschedules.com when you sign up. Paul Griswold Howes loved his job. He was curator of the Bruce Museum, a small but impressive collection of art, science, and natural history housed in a sprawling 19th century mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. Howes was a local boy made good, hired as an assistant curator and taxidermist by the museum in 1918, just 10 years after it first opened its doors. And Howes had done well at the Bruce, working his way up to become its curator-director in 1938. The museum was perfect for a man like him. When not at the museum, Howes was organizing expeditions to Central and South America, working alongside the American Museum of Natural History and the New York Zoological Society. And the Bruce had flourished under his care, housing and displaying the thousands of specimens he collected on his travels to Central and South America. Whether it was the new species of wasp he had discovered in Guyana, or the hummingbird eggs he had picked up in Peru. And naturally, Howes was a member of the illustrious Explorers Club. After all, this was a man who had gone on expeditions with Teddy Roosevelt and Louis Agassiz Fuertes, considered by some to be the greatest naturalist painter since Audubon. And throughout his career, Howes had been an active member of the club. It was easy enough for him to get to the meetings and annual dinners in New York City, just a short train ride away. But it was inevitable that he would have to miss a dinner sooner or later. Howes was a busy man, and still went on a number of expeditions and research trips all over the world. And when Howes checked his diary sometime in late December of 1950, he realized he would have to miss the 47th annual Explorers Club dinner which was to be held at the Roosevelt Hotel on January 13th of 1951. It was bad enough just to have to miss the dinner. But Howes had already heard the latest club scuttlebutt. That 1951's dinner would go down in history as the wildest the club had ever put on. 
You see, the chairman of the dinner, Wendell Phillips Dodge, had somehow acquired 250,000-year-old woolly mammoth meat as an hors d'oeuvre. Everyone who attended the dinner would have a chance to try some. Now, to have to miss the dinner in and of itself was one thing, but for a curator of a natural history museum like Howe's, to miss the chance to see, let alone taste, woolly mammoth meat, well, it was unthinkable. But Howe's, ever the museum curator, had an idea. Why pass up the chance for the Bruce to feature mastodon or woolly mammoth meat? Especially when the Explorers Club was basically giving it away for the low price of the annual dinner. A bargain at $9.50. Museums the world over were clamoring to get their hands on a woolly mammoth display, a perennial favorite for museum goers. Now the Bruce, as a small museum, had no chance of getting a mammoth skeleton. But if they could feature a piece of mastodon meat... What a boost to the collection that would be. Howes decided the situation demanded a strongly written letter. And the following is that strongly written letter sent by Howes in late December of 1950. Dear Explorers Club, Unfortunately, I will have to be away at the time of the annual dinner. But I am so anxious to have a fragment of that 250,000-year-old mastodon meet for this museum that I had planned to secretly pocket my share and exhibit here for all time instead of swallowing it. Would the club let me have my tidbit preserved for this purpose if I sent my $9.50, although I can't be there to get it on the night of the dinner? This is a crazy request, but then you know explorers. I don't see why anyone else should get my share either, so if you all say yes, I will send the check and an official bottle of preservative in which to drop this remarkable item. Then we'll have something here besides models and pictures and a couple of stray teeth to brag about. I hope the whole dinner will be the usual vast success. Sincerely yours, Paul G. Howes. And as luck would have it, a few weeks later the bottle Howes had sent along with his letter showed back up at the Bruce Museum in the afternoon post. Sitting in the bottle of preservative fluid was, well, something that resembled meat. Howes was thrilled. Here was the woolly mammoth meat that would soon be the pride of the Bruce collection. But something was wrong. The identification tag attached to the bottled meat had been filled out, and in the chairman of the dinner's own hand. But when Howes inspected it, instead of saying mastodon or woolly mammoth, the tag read megatherium, a.k.a. Giant sloth. Howes was understandably confused. Hadn't the dinner served woolly mammoth? Why had Dodge sent him a piece of sloth meat instead? He wrote to Dodge to try and get the matter solved, but to no avail. And so the mystery meat, labeled Megatherium, sat on the shelves of the Bruce Museum for the next 60 years. So let's fast forward a bit to the 21st century and to another museum in Connecticut, the Peabody in New Haven. Now, by this point, the 47th annual dinner and the so-called mammoth meat appetizer was the stuff of legends. And the Bruce Museum's sample of that mystery meat had been transferred, long after Paul Howes' death in 1984, to the Peabody. And there it sat, more or less forgotten. The odd confusion over its sloth-like or mammothy nature never fully solved. That is, until a few years ago, when two enterprising graduate students at Yale decided to solve the mystery once and for all. So I, I knew about this specimen dating back to, gosh, 2007. I was, I was a Yale undergraduate student, and I was working in the collections of the Peabody Museum, mostly working with fish um, and other kind of jarred specimens preserved in ethanol. That's Jessica Glass, who happened upon the mystery meet while she was a Yale undergraduate, working at the Peabody Museum in New Haven. And there was this meat specimen that was labeled Megatherium that I, and I read the label and it was just kind of, it was, I mean, it was well taken care of, but it was just kind of back on the shelf and no one was really paying much attention to it. And I just always thought it was the most fascinating thing that people ate this sloth that 
could have been dead for hundreds and thousands of years and they cooked it and ate it at dinner. So I would always talk about it and I'd show it to my friends when I'd show them the collections. Um, but what, you know, I kind of was doing other things. And then I came back to Yale as a PhD student and I was taking a mammalogy class. And during this section on xenarthrins, on sloths, our professor, Eric Sargis, uh, mentioned that we had this, you know, specimen in the museum of ancient ground sloth. And if any of the students wanted to do the genetics on it, uh, you know, feel free to come up and talk to him. So I spread it up to the room. <laughs> I didn't have much competition, but I said, Mimi, I know about the specimen. I love it. It's been my favorite for years. Uh, I want to do this work. And, and at that point, you know, I was doing my PhD in genetics. So I had the background to kind of delve into this. I know what you're thinking. What's all this about a sloth? Where was the woolly mammoth meat? See, Jessica and the rest of the folks at the Peabody Museum had taken the specimen label at its word. Megatherium, a.k.a. ancient giant ground sloth. But Howes had asked for woolly mammoth meat. What had happened? Enter Matt Davis, another graduate student at Yale. I was already a member of the Explorers Club at the time, so I had heard uh, the story of them eating woolly mammoth. And, uh, you know, it's pretty famous. I think even people who are outside the Explorers Club had heard about it before. And if you tour the club headquarters, I mean, they have a big mammoth tusk just hanging in their trophy room. And, um, you know, people will point to it and say, oh, those are the leftovers from the time we ate woolly mammoth. You know, so I was also doing my PhD at Yale and uh, studying the Ice Age. So I knew about all the fossil sloths we had. And they're stored in a different place in the museum because they're rocks, basically. You know, they. Um, but I never spent much time in the, the wet collection or, you know, where all the specimens were kept in jars just because... I wasn't working with those kind of animals. And I was having lunch with uh, Eric Sargis, who is this professor of the class we were, that I was a uh, teaching assistant for. And we were talking about sloths because that lecture was coming up. And he just said, you know, it's so weird that uh, I've never, like, no one's ever studied that piece of sloth meat we have. And I thought, I thought he meant this other sloth we had because we actually had a, probably the world's best preserved Shasta ground sloth in the museum. And I said, yeah, that Shasta ground sloth is amazing. You know, I'd, I'd love to uh, take it off display sometime and investigate it too. And he said, no, this is a megatherium. We have the megatherium they ate at the Explorers Club dinner. And I said, that was a woolly mammoth. He said, no, it's a megatherium. It says it right on the label. And so we both went back immediately and looked at the jar. And it says really clearly, this is megatherium eaten at the Explorers Club dinner. And so I was super psyched. And I said, we have to figure this out immediately. But distinguishing woolly mammoth from ancient ground sloth may not be as simple as it sounds, particularly when that mammoth, or sloth, had already been cooked up as an appetizer for hungry explorers over 60 years ago. Well, the first kind of hurdle was was being able to uh, even extract you know, any DNA from the specimen. So we we weren't sure how well it had been preserved or if it had been preserved in any sort of other type of liquid that would, you know, damage or destroy DNA before we acquired it. But there wasn't any really record on what it had been previously kind of put in. And so the first thing, like I said, was to kind of go through and try to find the least contaminated part of the meat, which involved going and working in a, in a ancient DNA specific laboratory, which we have um, at Yale. So basically what you do is you go through, you kind of take the tissue, you um, you basically kind of digest it and get rid of all the proteins and the cell walls and just get the DNA. Um, just a matter of kind of incubating it and adding different types of solutions. And then you can see if you, you can run a test to see if there's like even DNA in the sample. And that was kind of the first step that and we found there was DNA, but it was really diluted and meaning like really small kind of fragments. So I concentrated everything again t together. And then essentially you do um, a polymerase chain reaction or a PCR. So you have a certain, um, we were targeting part of the mitochondrial genome. So there's a certain kind of chunk of the, of the, uh, the DNA that you can that you can preferentially kind of capture, and you know kind of the 
the we call it a primer or the base pairs that you want. And and so there's the the big challenge initially was, you know, we thought this could be a mammoth or a sloth, which are very kind of distantly related mammals. You know, they're not there. It's not like a dog versus a wolf or something like that. Um, and so we choosing kind of which, which section of the DNA to target um, was a complicated process. And I was going through the literature and seeing what other groups have targeted. So there's, there had been like ancient bison and ancient horse. And, and so, you know, as DNA mutates, you know, the certain kind of sequences that you, base pairs, so the A's, T's, G's, and C's that you use can change um, from, you know, reptiles to mammals and then even amongst mammals and even amongst different species um, that are pretty closely related. So we ended up using these kind of generic vertebrate uh, primers, right, to target one section of the DNA, one sequence that was about 300 of those base pairs. While Jessica was off in the lab, Matt had his head down on the archives. Because the question remained, how did woolly mammoth meat end up getting relabeled as ancient sloth? After all, these Explorers Club members were biologists and naturalists. One does not simply mistake mammoth for sloth. Matt did a little digging. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Where had the so-called mammoth meat that was to be served at the 1951 Explorers Club dinner come from? So I did a lot of work at the Explorers Club archives, and Yale also has a a lot of archives uh, relating to a lot of these uh, characters. So there's a lot of uh, looking through old dusty files and books and things like that and trying to track down old newspaper clippings. And that was kind of surprising to us at at the beginning, at least, is that I'd always heard the story that it was a mammoth preserved. But as you look back in some of the original newspaper clippings, a lot of people said it was a sloth. And it seems like they weren't actually sure what it was at the dinner. People actually debated um, what they had found. And I don't know, maybe half of them went away thinking it was a sloth and half of them went away thinking it was a mammoth. But I guess there were maybe one of those stories won out over time. And that's the one that people seem to remember. And it was quite the story. A woolly mammoth dug out of Alaskan glaciers, packed up and shipped to New York for a prehistoric appetizer unlike any other. Wendell Phillips Dodge, the chairman of the 1951 dinner, had a whole story to back up his woolly mammoth meal. As far as we can tell from, the, I guess, the original, the proto version, um, was that this was found by uh, Father Bernard Rosecrans Hubbard. So Hubbard was a, a Catholic priest, and he taught at the University of Santa Clara, but he was uh, a world-recognized Arctic explorer. He was one of the highest-paid lecturers in his time. Uh, he made all these movies and wrote books about uh, expeditions in Alaska. And he supposedly found this on Accutan Island in the Aleutians of Alaska. He had this frozen woolly mammoth carcass that he knew about. And with the help of another famous uh, polar explorer, he sent this back to uh, New York in time for the dinner. Given the fame of Hubbard and, and Costco, who was a, I think, a general or a commander? Uh, for uh, the, he was a yeah, Navy captain. So a Captain of the U.S. Navy. It was all very believable. And, and Costco was living on Kodiak Island in Alaska. And, and other dishes that they served at that same dinner were shipped from Alaska. So they had glacial ice from Juneau to chill their cocktails. And they had king crabs. And they, I think they served moss or lichen as well. So it was, you know, we don't know if Costco or Hubbard were in on this. But to anyone else looking in, it was entirely, you know, plausible that they could have found mammoths. Oh, Costco, yeah, he was a famous explorer. I mean, he has glaciers named after him in Antarctica. He would collect stuff for the Smithsonian. Um, 
and he's he's also the only person to film the Japanese surrender of World War II in color photograph because he was on that ship. I mean, so he wrote books on uh, the typhoons that destroyed Admiral Hazley's fleet. So all these guys have this rich history. But yeah, Jessica said it was. I mean, like the what's more ridiculous that they flew a 200-pound block of ice from a glacier just to chill their cocktails, so that they also included a frozen woolly mammoth on the plane when they flew back. I mean, considering the other stuff in the club, it really wasn't that weird that they, you know, it wasn't crazy that they could be actually eating this. But when Paul Howes insisted on a piece of that famous woolly mammoth for his collection at the Bruce Museum, things took a turn for the, well, bizarre. Investigating into this more and more, um, this one character really loomed large, and it was uh, Commander Wendell Phillips Dodge. So he was the chairperson of the dinner. So he was in charge of the menu and of organizing, uh, you know, all the guests and the speakers and, and everything. And he's uh, quite a character himself. So uh, he got into the Explorers Club because he had gone on a lot of expeditions. He was a circumnavigator, so he'd been all the way around the world. And uh, by the time he was 18, he had actually ridden a camel across what is now Syria, Iran, and Iraq. His dad was uh, the person who brought the Baha'i faith to North America. So a lot of his early expeditions were accompanying his father uh, to all these places to pick up documents and stories and and things that they could later use to expand the faith in North America. Uh, but he was, I mean, that was kind of his uh, early hobby, one could say. His day job was that he was an editor. Uh, but he was also a play producer. So he was the first person to bring Sweeney Todd to, to America. He also ran a play or a theater in uh, Paris. And I don't know, there's mixed reviews. Some people say like uh, Sweeney Todd curdles, but in the wrong manner. Um, he was also a, uh, a press agent um, for lots of people who were famous back then, but Mae West probably being the most famous one still today. So he, he definitely knew how to work this system, um, you know, to get publicity for things. And so he is he puts out a press release before the dinner saying that they're going to dine on some frozen thing. He doesn't say what it is, but it's an extinct beast that they found in Alaska and they're going to eat it. So there's already lots of anticipation for this. And that's how Howes, who was this curator, knew that they were actually going to eat something prehistoric. And the actual dinner itself is apparently a huge success. Lots of people write about it in newspapers. It's still unclear what they ate at this point. Some people saying mammoth, some people saying uh, ground sloth. And it seems like there was such confusion that Dodge actually wrote an editorial in the club's own journal um, acknowledging it. And he starts off pretty matter-of-factly describing the dinner and the story of how Howes wanted a piece of it. And he talks about, he publishes his letters back and forth with Howes. And what's clear from reading them, Dodge's letters only confuse the matter. Here is Dodge's response to Howe's request for a piece of that woolly mammoth meat. What is more to the point, especially for your great concern, my having to preserve the 250,000-year-old or more rarest of all tidbits, the best eatable parts of prehistoric sloths that fed on pteropods, little swimming snails known as sea butterflies of the Cenozoic Age. But I will see to it that your share or fragment of the old mastodon is dropped into the official bottle of preservative you are to send to me. Did you hear that? In the letter, Dodge refers to both sloths and mastodons, a.k.a. woolly mammoths, not to mention sea butterflies, an evasive answer if ever there was one, and Howes was understandably confused. What kind of ancient meat was he getting exactly? As Matt Davis learned from reading Dodge's letters, his history as a theater showman wasn't going to waste. You know, he talks about the meat being frozen and then cooked in a volcano and then frozen again. And so by the end, he admits that maybe he's found a potion by which he could turn, uh, you know, Tloniomidus, this green sea turtle, into giant ground sloth from the pit of Hades. Wait, sea turtle? Where did sea turtle come into any of this? One thing was clear. The answer about what the meat really was wasn't going to come from Dodge's letters. And just as Matt was hitting a wall in the archives, 
Back in the lab, Jessica was making an unexpected discovery. Having extracted a portion of the specimen's DNA sequence, Jessica turned to the wonders of 21st century research. The Internet. You can go online into a, a international database called GenBank, and where people have uploaded that same exact sequence for all sorts of animals. And you compare the sequence that you have and see kind of, it's almost like this, it's a matching game. It kind of goes through this database and it, it finds what other animals sequences most closely match that one. So I was doing this like on the weekends and nights. And so it took, and you know, we ran into hurdles like at first of trying to figure out what, like I said, what primers to use. So do we, do we use sequences that will only tell us about you know, mammoths or only sequences that will tell us about mammals or in the case that we ended up going with all vertebrates and, and figuring that out. I mean, it's a lot of, you only have a limited number of uh, amount of DNA. And so you don't want to waste time or money. Uh, it's expensive to do a lot of this stuff. So um, once we got to that point, it'd been, I think, a couple months and, and Matt was in charge of all the archival research. And we both we're sitting there in front of the computer when we kind of plugged in the sequence and then waited, I think like 10 or 20 seconds. And then boom, it showed up Chelonium-itis. <laughs> Green sea turtle. So the mystery after all these years was revealed. All the evidence finally added up. Dodge's back page confession in the Explorers Club journal that the meat had been sea turtle was confirmed by lab analysis. But why all the deception? Was this whole mammoth meat thing just a club joke that had gotten way out of hand? I think that's like the last kind of mystery that remains regarding this dinner and this story is we know Dodge had everything, if not a major part, um, to do with kind of tricking people. But we don't know if Hubbard was in on it or if Costco or... Paul Howes was in on it. And, and given how um, esteemed of a naturalist Paul Howes was, I find it hard to believe that had he known it was sea turtle, he wouldn't have displayed it in his museum as megatherium. You know, as a scientist, Dodge, as Matt mentioned, per personally filled out the specimen label and then Howes just went with it. So I think he was just as confused as everyone else <laughs> when he got the he got the reply from Dodge. He wouldn't have, you know, he, he didn't come across like a man who would want to, you know, trick the general public being the head of a natural history museum. Yeah, it, it's totally right. It's not a, neither way really makes sense to us because Howes was this expert. So how could he have not known it was fake? But but on the other hand, he he really cared about his museum. I mean, he was uh, one of the most distinguished naturalists in, in New England. He got the William T. Horner Day gold medal, uh, which is given, you know, to, to great conservationists or great educators in science. Like he, his whole life was this museum. And he, you know, from letters of his, we we see that he really cares about the, the sloth specimen. Even after he's retired, he's writing and saying, can you make sure the ethanol is filled up, you know, on the sloth jar? I want to make sure it's looking good. And so it, we can't see him being in on it either. And and Costco and, and Hubbard, too, um, we know they were both uh, at least friendly with, uh, with Dodge. So they were writing back and forth. But neither of them was at the dinner as far as we were we can tell. Um, so we, we think Dodge probably acted alone on this. And if it had been all in the name of publicity, the woolly mammoth was a natural pick for Dodge's sensational prehistoric appetizer. It's not even the first time this kind of thing has happened. I mean, uh, fake, fake mammoths have made it into real museums and real science in a way for a long time. Uh, in the Smithsonian, uh, someone published a, a fictional piece in McClure's where they hunted a live mammoth. And it was, it was labeled as fiction. I mean, there was nothing malicious about it at all. But it was so popular that thousands of people started writing to the Smithsonian asking if they could see the, the carcass you know, of a now-dead woolly mammoth that they had just shot. I mean, and scientists were writing in. They wanted, the Smithsonian had to have multiple um, you know, notices. They published saying, we don't actually have a mammoth that we just shot. They're only fossils. <laughs> It goes back even into the 1800s. I mean, so people have always had this romantic image of a woolly mammoth being frowned, found completely frozen in an ice cube, basically. And now we kind of dismiss that. But 
that was actually a big part of science in the early days. I mean, you have people like Sir Charles Lyell, who wrote the principles of geology, saying that, you know, mammoths, uh, their, their bones are found in icebergs. And they, the scientists had to come up with explanations of how you could freeze an entire animal like that. So it was part of this big debate between catastrophism and gradualism, even, that these, these mammoths, which were never found in ice cubes, um, you know, they, they played an important part even in this, yeah, even in the science. They're, they're found in permafrost, which is frozen dirt, right? So they're frozen, but it's not in an ice cube. And so, I mean, even the, the smartest scientists were arguing about this stuff for a long time. There's papers well into the 50s where they're saying mammoths aren't found in ice cubes in scientific journals, but you can still see it going on today. I mean, every time you hear about them finding mammoth DNA or something, they always show a picture of a mammoth in an ice cube. Uh, and, and eating woolly mammoths, I, this just plays into that, right? Because if you can eat it, then that means it's been preserved so well. You know, and how could you preserve something for thousands and thousands of years uh, so that you could actually eat it today? And so the eating woolly mammoths has gone back to when they were first finding woolly mammoths. I mean, some of the first people who collected it said, you know, the flesh looks so good that it's, it's red, you know. It looks like you could almost eat it. But if the meat wasn't mammoth or sloth, where had the turtle come from? And we did find out later on that sea turtle, that green sea turtle was served um, at the dinner. Um, was it a soup, I believe? So we found, when we found the menu, um, it, it was served, but then it was also advertised, you know, as being served in addition to something prehistoric. So it, it makes sense now, knowing the menu. The green sea turtle is endangered today, but they, it was a very popular dish um, in high society and all matters of society back then. So it was actually served at several Explorers Club annual dinners um, before and after this one. In 2016, Matt and Jessica published their findings and the true nature of the Explorers Club mystery meat with their co-authors, Tim Walsh, Eric Sargas, and Giselle Kakone, in a paper titled, Was Frozen Mammoth or Giant Ground Sloth Served for Dinner at the Explorers Club? Although they may have solved a 60-year-old mystery, Matt and Jessica's research points towards much larger themes about the importance of museum collections. Always think about when I, whenever we talk about this story, I just think about how cool it is and and how important it is for museums to keep these specimens and keep them so well, kind of taken care of. Because, um, like as Matt mentioned, you know, this these accounts that are that are taken for fact can have consequences down the line for science. You know, we had this megatherium was in the collection and and people that are kind of just going through and doing these big meadow analyses just pull data from the museums and this would be an outlier that people might delete or they might actually take it seriously. And so the, the consequences are, are actually significant in some cases. And so I think we felt, you know, obligated to really investigate this and, and to try to figure out if it was true or not. And I, I, I just think it's so neat that when they preserved this, right, in 1951, that was before DNA had ever even been described. So the fact that 60 years later we could come along and do this method that wasn't even available back in the day is so cool. And I just think about even the future, like 50 years from now, what are we going to be able to figure out from these specimens that we're keeping in our museums based on technology and how it's changing? It's just, it's just so fun to me to think about that with this specimen. So what's happened to that Explorers Club specimen now that its true nature as a green sea turtle has been revealed? Oh, it has been relabeled in the um, herpetology, <laughs> I guess, catalog. But actually, this is really cool. Until just about a month ago, um, the Yale Peabody displayed this meat in their big 150th anniversary collection. So they had all sorts of amazing artifacts that they brought out on display in a special exhibit to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the museum. And they had, gosh, they had a giant clam. They had correspondence from Charles Darwin. They had all sorts of cool things, including this megatherium meat. And what was really cool is that they had actually already made all the plans for this exhibit. And then our paper came out and they were so excited about this piece of meat that they cut an extra hole in the wall and made a new display case just for this. Yeah. So the Peabody were actually 
I think the only museum that has both a turtle that's been confused for a ground sloth and a ground sloth that's been confused for a turtle. So actually in 1842, there was another famous paleontologist called Richard Harlan who worked at the Philadelphia Museum. And he found a bone, which he said, he said, oh, this is a fossil sea turtle. And so he named a new species, Trelonia cooperi. But later it turned out that it was actually just the clavicle, like uh, the shoulder bone. If you reach up near your neck and touch that bone that sticks out, that's the clavicle. Someone was like, that's not a femur of a turtle. That's the clavicle of a giant ground sloth. And so we have a copy of that bone in our museum. And we also have something that was thought to be a ground sloth, but is actually a sea turtle. So <laughs> I think the, the Peabody is unique in that aspect. And what about the Explorers Club? How did they take the news that their famous mammoth meal was really just a lowly sea turtle in disguise? I think they were a little bit, um, you know, it kind of killed the mystery, but I think they were a little bit, they were happy to know. And it's not necessarily, you know, you hear about people eating mammoth and, and some some members of the public might take that in a negative light. <laughs> like if this really was the only ground sloth specimen from this location and they found out that Explorers Club members ate most of it, that might not have played out well. But the only reason we have it is because they ate it. So <laughs> we never would have known about it otherwise. Matt and Jessica's paper also comes at a time when the Explorers Club itself is reframing its famous annual dinners. Instead of featuring just the so-called exotic or unusual or the rare, the club's dinners now showcase global issues through the lens of food and cuisine, promoting environmental awareness and sustainability through innovative approaches to how and what we eat. Our paper came out in uh, February of 2016, and the dinner was in March. It's always in March every year. And last year, the theme was um, the ocean. And, and I think the Explorers Club is trying to shed this image of, own, of what it's most known for, which is the dinner. And they're trying to kind of promote themselves as a club that also fosters sustainability and science and research. And so um, last year they served like invasive species um, to try to show that like that's one option of conservation is eating invasive species. So there, that was a huge push to kind of highlight the conservation component. This year's theme is the Arctic. I'm not sure what they're serving, but they've definitely, you know, and especially in light of events like, you know, Cecile the Lion and, and other kind of controversial um hunting experiences and things like that. They, they, they want to really push this big component of the mission, which is to promote research and exploration. I mean, I, they've always used the dinner as a platform to promote that. And I think like what Jessica said, they're, they're emphasizing, you know, more the sustainability aspect of it now, or uh, a couple of years ago, they had an all sustainable insect uh, exotics menu. So it was kind of, you know, what are we going to be eating in the future? when we don't have space to graze cattle or things like that. So I, I think they're, they're really highlighting those aspects of the mission now. Of course, it still helps to have a strong stomach if you happen to find yourself at an Explorers Club dinner. 2016's menu featured iguana meatballs, a nod to the invasive species currently devastating Puerto Rico's ecosystem. Easier on the stomach were other invasive appetizers, like Asian carp, a species wreaking havoc on the Mississippi River or even the lionfish, which has decimated coastal fish and crustacean populations in the southern United States. Even with its so-called mammoth appetizer, the rest of the 1951 dinner can look comparatively tame to 21st century offerings at the Explorers Club. With the new focus on conservation and environmental awareness at the Explorers Club dinners, science may be back on the menu, in which what's on our plates can be an extension of sustainable agricultural practices, or protecting and promoting native species. But the specimen at the Peabody also was a tantalizing hint at our own culinary past. As Matt said, it was a good thing the explorers weren't actually eating woolly mammoth or prehistoric sloth in 1951. But through Wendell Phillips Dodge's theatrical showmanship, by promoting the meal as a prehistoric feast, the dinner raised awareness not only for biological and geological research in Alaska— where the mammoth or sloth was supposedly pulled from, but even has continued to foster research up until today. Even with the discovery that the mystery meat was just plain old sea turtle, Matt and Jessica's paper was a viral hit, 
perhaps a testament to the enduring love we humans have for those prehistoric shaggy beasts, the woolly mammoths. Something Wendell Phillips Dodge may have capitalized on years ago. With newspapers seizing on the idea of a mammoth dinner, public awareness of excavation and preservation of woolly mammoths increased significantly, leading to greater funding of these projects throughout the world. And even today, our love for the woolly mammoth continues, but in our own 21st century way. Scientists continue to investigate what caused the extinction of the woolly mammoth, even with the possibility of reviving the species through genetic manipulation. Recent scientific papers and books, such as Dr. Beth Shapiro's 2008 book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, discusses the implication of bringing these prehistoric beasts into the 21st century. Maybe we're not that far from Dodge's fantasy of a woolly mammoth dinner after all. We'll put a link to the book on our website, as well, of course, as Jessica and Matt's paper, which goes into much greater detail about their analysis of the mammoth slash sloth slash turtle, or as they refer to it, the slimurtle. A huge thank you to both Jessica and Matt for their help with this episode, particularly for all the photos and resources they were so generous to provide. You can read more about their current research on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We have all kinds of great stuff on there about the origins of the mysterious mammoth meat and the 1951 dinner, so it's really worth it to drop on by. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port. Music featured today includes work by Jazar and Maciej Zolnowski. For a list of all the music on today's episode, please visit our website. And that's it for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great stories of meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.